Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is comedian Eliza Schlesinger. And to say that she is busy and kicking ass is really an understatement. I mean, she has five stand-up shows on Netflix. She has a movie called Good on Paper that's basically loosed on maybe a less than completely honest boyfriend. She has a sketch comedy show. She's touring. She and her husband are expecting their first child. And I really wanted to sit down and talk with her about how she's getting it all done. That's a tough business and it's mostly dominated by males and how she navigates that and dating in your 20s and 30s and just following your passion and your calling because I think to do any creative job is really difficult and we only see when people are successful. She's obviously very funny and has really strong opinions. I don't know that Eliza loves to be interviewed and so I was really grateful that she took time out, came to my home and was just willing to have a rich conversation about a lot of these things. Hope you enjoy. You know, the thing is, is a lot of times when you see someone who's as funny as you are and makes funny their business, you see like, okay, they have this sadness or this and that. And I, I know, listen, I know you had your own things, but I couldn't help but think that maybe also because your dad likes funny. I was like, oh, maybe also besides you're funny, you were born funny, is that that was also a way that you maybe connected with your dad around funny. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I think people would like it to be that complex. And I'm not saying you want that. But no, no. I think especially with women, it's like, well, how did you bond with your dad? Like, My mom's funny. My yeah. dad's funny. These are like New Yorkers. And there's a practicality in the way they approach stuff. And there's this sort of idea that like everyone's kind of an idiot. So like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny. Later in life, we've connected over the fact that I do stand up because I didn't do stand up when I was younger. So I always thought he was so funny. And now it's like a vibration we connect on. How do you end up? from New York, you guys are in Dallas. It's called an immigration and it happened in the 80s and I only know that term because I read, looked it up for a pilot that didn't go. It was a lot of New Yorkers moved to Texas in the 80s for tax purposes and land was super cheap and mm-hmm. My parents were two of them. There's actually a lot of New York Jews that did that. And so they moved there in the 80s and then got a divorce shortly after. And so I'm from Dallas, Texas. My dad still lives there with my stepmom. My mom was in Florida, as everyone does. And I live in LA, yeah, as everyone does. And we just make it work. I'm wondering when you're young, you know you're funny, right? Yes. And do you think... I did. I'm not going to speak for everyone unless I get canceled, but I knew. Yeah. Sure. No, I mean yourself. I think we have the senses of ourselves. I, I know you saw something and thought, okay, I'm going to do this, or you had an experience. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who they have something inside of them, but it's too scary and mm-hmm. they don't have anyone around them to foster it or do anything. You know, how do you go from the internal calling and then now at this level, then it becomes strategy? Yeah, that's a, a good question. There's something to be said for when no one tells you you can't do anything versus people actively saying you're bad at something. Because you always hear people, you know, like, I want to be singing. They're like, it'll never work for you. And that never happened to me versus, oh, you're so funny. Oh, you're so funny. Oh, you should be on Saturday Night Live. When you're growing up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, that's the only reference point. 
is that. You're the funny girl. And I just kind of naturally, my teachers knew I was funny and my parents never pushed me in one way or the other. I remember I went to two a days for volleyball at my new school and it was the first time it was ever like, oh, you're going to run a mile. Like it was like real training. It was high school competitive versus like middle school. And I came home and I was like, I don't want to do this. She's like, you got to go back. Oh. She's like, you got to go back because you said you were going to do it. You got to finish what you, you started. Finish. And I know this is lame, but like the two a days I did my freshman year of high school doing that because it was a really rigorous, even for JV, just a really rigorous program. But having completed that, it was my first sort of push in the direction of like, if it hurts, you still have to do it because you said you were going to do it mm. and follow through. And I wonder if that instilled like a bit of like desire for pain in a work ethic. And then, so you're always, you join improv and you just try to get it wherever you can. It's not like sports where it's an abundant thing where you can always do them. Right. So you find the shows that you think are funny. And I start. I would start to cobble together my own education, not knowing if there was anyone else like me out there. And then you look at colleges and then you start to see like, oh my God, like there's other kids that are just like me that like the things that I like. And some of these kids are weird, but some of them are just like me. It's such a spectrum of creativity. You find the college and then you start to foster that creativity. And luckily I had a mother who, when I said I want to do a semester at sea or I'm going to do a one-man show, it wasn't a blind acceptance of everything. And I was successful young enough Mm -hmm. that... It was never, what are you going to do with your life? Yeah, it seemed realistic. I, I think sometimes, yeah. you know, there's, it's, that's the one thing hard about maybe coming in for people who come to, let's say, Los Angeles to become, or New York to become performers. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm around great comics all the time. And I'm also around comics that are, really shouldn't be doing it. First of all, it's not your place to say, hey, right. you're, you're terrible. But on a selfish note, you never want to tell anyone to stop because what if that person gets that sitcom tomorrow and then you need a job from them? So that's why it's like this spineless sort of encouragement of like, I'm not going to be the one to tell you to stop. Like you are truly terrible and don't understand timing, but you're the kind of person who would get a break. Yeah. (laughs) So you always want to be on the side of like, yeah, I was always cool to them. Because it happens all the time. I read your Girl Logic book. Oh my gosh, thank you. Well, of course. I'm, oh, I mean, come you'd on. Be surprised. No, no, come on. Okay. And one of the things that you said was when you were in the house, part of the reality show. Oh, yeah. And that you really figured out that you weren't going to be the one to say anything. Yes. When I was thinking about Girl Logic, the other thing that is like, I have three daughters. One thing I always talk to them about is avoiding drama, mm. like keeping your mouth shut. Mm. So, What we're talking about here is how women, and I talk about this, like live in the gray and men are very black and white. Mm -hmm. And there's also, when you're a man, you are instantly imbued the day that you're born with this hubris and this entitlement to be very direct that we don't afford women. So in theory, we say that, but in practice, Mm -hmm. it's rarely lauded because it's like, well, then she's a bitch. And the easy answer is like, well, who cares? And it's like, but you do care because when you're a woman, other people's opinion of you very quickly becomes the reality, even if it's not true. And that can affect a lot of things. Whereas if a guy is a dick, it's like, he's a dick, but we're still going to treat him as if he's not. I think your consistency builds a body of work that speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. I have this rule where I never pass on uh, a negative sentiment I hear about another female performer because your chances are a lot of people don't like her and I don't need to pile on Mm -hmm. But I do believe building a body of work that speaks for itself so that when you show up on set, you know, you're not an extra, like you're the star. You connect with that director. And I always say like, look, I show up, I want to do my job, and then we want to go home. I'm not here to fuck around. I'm not here to show up drunk. And I listen and I'm thoughtful and I treat everyone with respect. You don't have to bend over backward. But if you establish this sort of professionalism Mm -hmm. and if you're number one on the call sheet, it's kind of okay. And and there's that weird thing where if you're the girl and you're not like, oh my God, and how's your morning? 
then it's like, oh, what a bitch. But I think you set up an energy and an expectation and you teach people how to treat you. Yeah. And you're just cool to people. You don't have to smile at everyone, but you give people the time of day. That way, when there is an outlier, it's easily identifiable. Right. I've had that happen. I showed up to do a show. It was like an interview show. I sat quietly. I ate with the makeup artist. I waited till my turn, you know, and this guy mispronounced my last name and I corrected him. And the feedback was that I was difficult. And I knew it was from this one guy and we traced it back to him. And my publicist called. He's like, why are you telling people that? Yeah. And he apologized. So it doesn't happen often, but if you're consistently good enough, those minor opinions based on their own ego and what they're going through tend to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Baseline manners and respect. Yes. Decency. Hi, nice to see you. How are you? And I go, and you can, you can split. I'm, you're the perfect person because when I, after Thank I you. read Girl Logic, <laughs> Thank you so much. it's dual. Mm-hmm. You have to show up. You can't gossip. You better deliver you know, if you have something to say, say it. And conversely, you don't have to play by the rules that you think exist for us because we're female. And for me, like when I see the way you approach your job, it's your craft, it's your profession, it's, it's your passion, it's all these things. And that allows you, because you approach it that way, then to go, what did you say? I'm not here to turn you on. I'm here to make you laugh, right? right. And so I think it's getting people also, younger females, to understand the rules all the way around. The rules are, if you're good enough at what you do, you make your own rules. And the rules are, it's not rules as much as it is a game. Right. And understanding there are dumb people, mostly everywhere, and... Most people are deeply insecure. And in fact, when you're talking about gossip or whatever it is that people talk about, it often comes from a place of insecurity. And nothing rattles people's cages more than when you are secure. The feedback my whole life is like, well, you know, she, it's not that she, she just, um, or he, like you just, you know, your success makes them insecure. And I'm like, well, how is that my fault? It's a choice to show up Time and time again, and like you said, shake a hand, look someone in the eye, Mm -hmm. and give them the time of day. And never throw the first punch. Because then people are surprised if you snap at them. And you're like, well, you've been horrible to me. And they're like, well, I don't know what I did. Yeah. So a big lesson that I've learned in stand-up is we do these uh, meet and greets, or I do them after the show. A lot of people don't do them. I happen to have great fans, so I like that. People don't realize how mean some of the things that they say are. Yeah. And it's toothless when they say it. So to say, I'd never heard of you before, and then I came here. What you're saying is, I'm so glad I found out who you are. What I'm hearing as a comic is like, all your work is meaningless because I just found you while I was on the toilet. One girl the other day, I saved it and then I just erased it because I was like, what am I going to do with this? From the audience before the show, she Instagrammed out, my husband hates Eliza Schlesinger, but he brought me. And I was like, ooh, is that like a little too aggressive of language? (laughs) And plus, like I still have your money. Anyways, so you meet these people face to face and sometimes they say stuff that is actually hurtful or... What it is, is that they're nervous. And being a comic, even though it's all about me and what I'm saying, a big part of it I've learned is giving someone that second chance, identifying, no, they're not mean. It wasn't malintended. It was out of ignorance and they didn't mean it. When they're trying to connect with you yeah. and they have four seconds to exactly. do it. And so a lot of times that comes out pretty awkward and weird. Yes. And they know that. Or they'll be like, oh, and I messed you know, and I'm like, it's totally cool. Yeah. You know how you go through and you get a little more experience? So you kind of put in lines of defense you learn how to kind of redirect it. And mm-hmm. I've learned, like people say some unusual things to me at times. Oh my God, I'm sure. And I'll be like, huh, what an interesting thing to say. But also my size helps. I move actually closer to people. The weirder they act, I move into their personal space. And I'm gonna teach you something that I really have used a lot. You know, when someone's like, oh my God, I don't wanna waste your time. And you're like sitting with your husband and eating, but you wanna honor them because yes. your job, and you said it, you're there because you have people that like you mm-hmm. and they, you have to honor that. That's mm-hmm. part of your job. 
job. And also you're fortunate. And they say, okay, can you take a picture or whatever? And so what I've learned is you go, oh, what's your name? Oh, Brad. Hey, Brad. Shake their hand. I put my hand on their shoulder. Nice to meet you. And I literally will like manually move them. them. I think as you get through things, like your ability to recognize, oh, this person's just uncomfortable. I'm not even going to take it personal. Like here's one of those comments. Right. Oh, they're nervous. Okay, cool. But that you learn also systems. And I do think that's the great thing of experience and age. You don't react to everything. Correct. And yes. you, you take it in stride. But they don't, we don't talk about that. Like boys learn because they have punch-ups and they learn not to take things personally. I also wish, and I, that's what one of the things I also really appreciated about your book, it's that reminder also to kind of teach women that like you sort of have to not always meet it with emotion. I can't say that I always do a good job of that. I'm a very sensitive person, but I think it is just the older you get, the more you're like, oh, it's the same kind of stuff. Most of it's good interactions. What I think is interesting about your tactic is you're playing into your strengths. You're seven foot eight. Okay. Yeah, nine foot two. Nine foot two. Yeah. As a tall person, yes. like that is something you're comfortable in moving your body, especially yeah. as an athlete. I would approach it- With wit. I w- <laughs> if somebody, you know- of course you say, hey, let me come over after, like I'm eating dinner. That doesn't happen to me a ton, but if somebody's making me uncomfortable or it's going on too long and I can see they don't know where to go yeah, and I totally get it because I know it's there's no malintent. Like they're yeah. just excited and I get that. I just tap into the fact that I'm from Texas and it's a big old smile oh. and it's like, so where are you guys from? Thank you so much for coming out. And you just keep it minimal and you don't, I've done the thing where I like launch into a story or I try to answer a question. Mm. People's minds are blank when they're meeting you. Yeah. So- I'm thinking, oh, I'll treat them like a friend and I'll give them context and I'll be like, actually, funny thing about that joke, they almost are incapable of receiving it, just as I would be if I met somebody who was massive to me. It's kind of like you're in stun mode. And so I think it's about identifying I'm bigger physically or mentally, not that they're stupid, but just in this moment, I have the control. A friend of mine, Chef Robert Irvine, this big celebrity chef, we did a USO tour and we were at a Mexican restaurant in like Tampa and people come rushing in to meet him because he's this big guy and- I was so impressed at the way someone's like, hey, can I get a picture now? And he was like, when I'm done. And I was like, oh my God, I would (laughs) never be able to speak like that. But part of it is the size. I've seen Joe Rogan, same thing. Like after a show, some idiot comes up and he's just like, I'm in the back right now. This is a private place. You shouldn't be back here. And I'm just like, oh my God, like to be able to speak to someone and be that adroit about it but it all comes from your physical comfort. I never want to hurt anyone's feelings, but I don't need to please everybody. But you're going to by virtue of the fact that like you woke up this morning and I do talk about this in the book. You can't please everyone. Just you existing is going to offend someone. Right. And the sooner you realize like for the most part, like you're like, I treat everyone kindly. I'm a good person. There's something wrong with that person. If they really took umbrage with the fact that I smiled or that I'm blonde or that I'm good at what I do. It so rarely does have to do with you. It's like one of the four agreements, but that being said, it doesn't take away from the fact that it really hurts because it'll feel so personal. And you're like, all I did was show up and do my best. And somehow you've decided that Mm. that's somehow attached to you. And my answer to that is to anybody who feels that way, like go out, pick up a weight, pick up a book, pick up a hobby, spend less time thinking about that. Because really, once you put your phone down, like the world is your oyster. I know. And that's the funny thing is unplugging. Well, you think about the narrative even in your mind. You're oh like, if God. I just switch that dialogue, it doesn't exist. Laird always reminds me, he's like, it's not coming through the front door. It's not real. 
this is something I'm learning. Uh-huh. If something happens that I that really bugs me, I let it live and die in that experience. Mm. I actually won't repeat it. Maybe I'll find one person that's the container that isn't the gas to make the fire hotter. Yes. They're just the container to let me go, can I just tell you something? Something and then, horrible, yeah. And then it goes away. Uh-huh. But that when you stop reliving it and bringing it up and being like, oh, wait, can I tell you yeah. what she said? Can I tell you what? It dies. I've been say practicing that because I think about like this type of discussion even you and I are having I don't think men have these types of discussions this is a very common conversation with women not that your interview is common no of course this kind of stuff that we're talking about I'm reticent to say mental health because that takes it to a different place but more like how am I confident how am I okay and men don't have these types of conversations it's like how much ivermectin can I have how many sheep can we clone (laughs) like like it's women are the ones doing the work and we are the ones doing the work based on the prison of society that's we've been put in. Yeah. It isn't as if these constructs were put there by us for us. These were things that we're born into. So we're just trying to navigate the healthiest way out of it. But to your point about like it lives and it dies in that moment. Yeah. The biggest gift I've given myself is being like, actually nobody cared and it's not as weird. I was leaving a show the other mm-hmm. night and I was on stage, so I have a stalker. And oh, great! That's great. It's great. I don't get Congratulations! Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel so beautiful. Um, <laughs> and somebody came up to the stage when you're on the stage. You know, lights are in your eyes. And the first time he ever made contact with me, he had come up to the stage, hmm. and this was years ago. So I'm on this stage randomly, and I see I can only just see a body coming up, and I stop my set and I go, "What are you doing? What is that?" And it was just the next comic, but he had come to the middle to set up his camera to mm-hmm. film his set, which is totally normal, totally fine. A little distracting, and I was like, "Get out of here." He had no idea that I was reacting to my own safety. Yeah. Women's safety is such a joke to most men. The fact that I might be protective of my space. And that was such a weird thing for him. And so I felt bad because I like snipped at him and no one knew what I was talking about. Yeah. So I got off stage, great set. And I ran to get in my car and I saw who I thought was that comic. And I went up, I go, I'm so sorry that I snapped at you. I, I, was, I was just writing and I babbled something and I left. My friend's like, that's not the same comic. I go, oh, and she goes, honestly, he was probably so pumped you were even talking to him. It doesn't matter what you said. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go back. It'll just be a weird interaction yeah. and no one will ever think about it again. Yeah. And that is the bulk of interactions is that nobody actually cares enough because everybody's thinking about themselves. But if I ever make fun of someone in the audience and they're cool and it's not like to tell someone to shut up, right? as I'm walking off stage, I usually put my hand on it. I go, hey, thanks. Like, thanks for being a good sport. Playing. To let them know like you were a part of it. Yeah. There's no one comes to a comedy show to feel bad. And as far as the guy stuff, I've, this is a hack that I've tried to teach my assistant and I try to teach friends. When you speak to men like men and you let them know that's what you're doing, they have no choice but to rise to the occasion. So when you use language like, and hey, I wanted to come directly to you. I wanted, I wanted to give you the respect of letting you know this. They're, they hear the word respect, they're like, oh yeah, thanks yeah. so much. I, and when you do it to a woman too, you're just like, and I wanted to call you personally. Mm. Like I had to cancel a USO tour and I take those very seriously yeah. because yeah. I'm pregnant. And she was not only understanding, she was like, I was pregnant at your age as well. I totally get it. Mm. Sometimes that little bit of directness and vulnerability, like telling someone a secret, yeah. it really goes a long way because you, they, they're reminded that you're a person too. Yeah, they understand your reasons. Mm-hmm. What's in your mind? Because you've conquered quite a bit. I mean, you're, you're very successful. T- to go on stage takes a lot of courage. You're in a relationship. What about this? It, this unknown adventure is really kind of, what do you think about it? popping into my head is like who are you who is she (laughs) who are you like what are you gonna be who what are you gonna be like what do you look like there's so much it's such a vast 
massive concept to wrap your mind around. And I think the best way to do it is just, it's just one day at a time, not reading every book. I'm sorry if that bothers people, not driving yourself crazy. I think your body kind of tells you what's wrong and what to do and not subscribing to all the hype, not buying into it Mm. and really tapping into, okay, but what do I want? Do like, do I really need a doula or is that just something someone said? Do I really need that? You know, and, and knowing the way that I work and how I like to provide for my family. And, you know, so women are like, when are you going to stay home with the baby? I'm like, no, you're going to stay home with the baby. I'm going to get a nanny because I'm the one that creates this life. But by the way, if this baby is born and I'm like, shut it down, I'm staying home. No one touch my child. So I'm giving myself mm-hmm. that grace of whatever I discover. Yeah. Because whatever your rules are, I've heard enough birth horror stories that like the baby's got her own plan, <laughs> whatever your plan is. Yeah. So it'll be what it'll be because one thing that I've learned with this career and perhaps this, how erratic this career is, and I'm realizing this as I'm saying this, has prepared me for the consistency is is that life is consistently erratic for me. There is nothing normal about it. I'm really wrestling with the fact that like I own this home and we're decorating it because I'm like, I watched 100 Foot Wave and as I was watching it, I knew nothing about surfing. I knew who your husband was, but I never had context for anything. I was so inspired that the main characters were like, yeah, we just picked up and we just went. We brought our kids and we just went all over. And I was like, that's right. I don't have to have all the normalcy that I think I do, but I actually think I want it. It's constantly opening up the possibility of like, you can create whatever you want if that's who you are. I will never live on the North Shore of Hawaii. Right. It will never, but it's cool that you can do that. You know, and I know that sounds so weird, but like you can create whatever you want. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got, I did some research. And what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law. And Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They, they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It'll know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month.
you're always producing and creating. And I know that your life is changing. Your comedy comes from your life. Yeah. Where do you get it from? I mean, as an outside person who isn't a comedian, and uh, I'm always in awe of people who can sort of really encapsulate these experiences and make them funny, share them, make them relatable on some level. Regardless, I mean, I know some of them are universal, but right. how do you know it's when it's funny? If it pops into my head, it's funny. I don't know how funny it's going to be. Sometimes you've got these jokes, you're like, this is it. And then you tell it and you're like, no, no one. And then you tell a joke and they're laughing and I'm like, what are they? I'm not positive what they're laughing at, but I'll keep saying it because, you know, not everybody thinks the way that you do. So, you know, it's funny, especially if it's dark and you think it's funny, like if something horrible happens and you're still mm-hmm. laughing at it, like then you know it's something really good. Pops into your head and you don't know till you go. You don't know till you try it. You say it on stage, but you tend to refine, you know when things are funny. And also I always say that the comedy gods reward vulnerability So that's, again, about like giving a small piece of yourself. You don't have to give all of it. You don't owe anyone anything, but just enough, especially when you meet other women. It's kind of like when you meet a dog, like you put your hand out, let another woman sniff it. You don't just come at a woman like, I'm the best and I'm beautiful, like she's going to want to bite you. But if you go up to a girl in the bathroom, right, and you both look gorgeous and you just say like, my God, these spanks, I'm just sweating. My butt is so sweaty. Then she's like, oh my God, my butt's sweaty too. Like there's a, a beauty in offering up the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. And it doesn't have to be inappropriate, but it comes from a place of I'm strong enough that I can withstand your judgment when I say something that I know I'm not supposed to say because it's uncouth. And then people in the audience, male and female, they're like, nope, yes, that is the thing that I wanted to say. Yeah. So it's all about how raw is it? And it, this doesn't have to be like, I was assaulted or anything right. like that, but like, where's the truth? You know, when you're writing a script, it's like, what's the truth? What's the, like, the note behind the note? Like, what are you actually wanting to say? What I'm actually wanting to say is like, actually, you know, I, I don't want to just like come up with a bit on here, but like no. what I'm actually wanting to say is the raw sentiment, not you know what, and everybody's trying really hard. No, what I actually want to say is, no, most people actually aren't and your taxes are paying for it. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's that honesty and then you get people on board and then they trust you that you're going to shepherd them through a set with a truly unique opinion that perhaps reflects their own. You know what, there's a lot of weird and unfair things culturally for women and also simultaneously, you still have to- You still have to do the work. You got to do the work. And it's so tricky, especially- with the conversations we're having now, which I fully, you know, like participating in, you know, we don't have to make this about race, but no. it's tough when you're white to be like, you know, it, it, to say to someone of color, like, just work harder. But I can only, only speak to stand up in that if you're really funny, like you're getting somewhere, if you're doing the work. And yeah. I think stand up, art, sports, whatever, like you got it. I'm a big proponent for those 10,000 hours. Yeah. Your hustle does not have to look like mine and your results don't have to look like mine because Lord knows I compare myself to people all the time. So we're saying it was at a lower level when you start, you know, it's like this rat race and you're just like, well, who, got what, who got what showcase, you know? And then the sense. more, the harder you work and the more you start to pull yourself up, there's more generosity. There's a calmness because we've all accomplished something. You had a show, I had a movie, I yeah. did this. You have a lane. You have a lane that you've created. And so it's less uh, backbitey at the bottom And I do believe you compare yourself to others, but I try to do it as a way of gauging where I am. Like, well, she did that. Well, that is possible to do a movie and that at the same, she did write her own thing. I could do that. Not in a, I hate her way. Mm. And it took a very long time to remove the, the petrifying competition and be able to say like, no, she's really funny because that cream does rise to the top. So having the luxury of being able to look at a fellow performer really comes, you know, down to just, 
being unshakable if you are determined. You know, if you're an Olympic athlete, you're going to go to that practice every morning, you know, because that's what you want. Some of us are born with like a sense of like, I know what I want. I actually don't know what I want. It's not a concrete thing. It's just, there's a drive. For me, the goal has never been, I just need to get this one thing. It's always been, I just need to get this one thing that occurred to me to get a couple months ago and to be able to create and perform on bigger and better levels, less encumbered by other people's ideas. Well, that's what success gives you, that freedom for choice. Isn't it the best? Like, I like that director and that writer, and Mm -hmm. I'd like to go to that, you know, whatever. And then they say no. You're like, okay, how about this other director? (laughs) How about I write it myself? Right, because then you get it. Sometimes you don't even realize you have it. And and my manager will be like, this is what you wanted. And I'm like, well, it's not enough now. That's never going to (laughs) change. Yeah. Because the goalpost is ever shifting. But I also think... It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I know that's trite to say, but especially in show business, like that's just what it is. So finding a way to be happy in this moment anyway, because it really is all that you have versus, you know, I would love to learn Swedish, but that is completely useless. You got to be born into that. Yes. Um, (laughs) But I forgot the point of that, but just finding happiness. Your happiness could just be like an iced tea, like taking a break for yourself. It could just be like buying some tacky fall decorations. It could be pushing yourself to watch a documentary that you never, like just Mm -hmm. constantly expanding your mind so that you don't become small-minded. And in doing all that, you forget to give a fuck about all the pedantic stuff Mm -hmm. that they tell us to harp on. I'm at a place now where like a friend will call with like gossip about someone who's very low vibration. And I will, I mean, look, gossip's so fun. Talking shit is so fun. And I'll just be like, I don't care. I don't care about this info. You'll know when I care because like yeah. I find it delicious. Yeah. I really believe in the vibrations of people and things. And you know, when you meet someone, the more colloquial term is like good vibes, bad vibes. Yeah. But what they're talking about is like, how does someone, like I met you and I was like, great vibration. Like you can just feel it. Sometimes people take them a minute to adjust it, but like, finding out what vibrations work for you, what situations do you want to be in, what situations do you not want to be in. And I think that's part of seeking out your happiness is like vibrationally what's uplifting my vibration versus dragging me down. And I think women, this is like such a tangent, but I think women are conditioned to accept a bad vibration and kowtow to that or find a way to make it work or apologize. And it's like, no, you don't have to. That dude's got a bad vibe. Excuse yourself. You got a friend that's a shitty vibe. Yeah. You don't have to offer them anything. So I have to say that when I did stalk your Instagram a little bit, obviously I left you a note. And what really is loud on your Instagram is your softness with your husband. Oh, thank you. I thought you were gonna say my dog. Yes, the husband. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Cause it feels like that. I don't know. I, I could be misreading I love that you said it. That. No. But it feels that <laughs> I'm way. I'm very so abusive much. physically to him. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you picked up on that. And effusiveness toward him is natural. And it really comes from you can't say that when I got married, I was like really content with the idea of marriage. It wasn't about dating other people. Your parents are divorced and you're a comic and you're like, but I always knew, like he's like a rudder. Like I always knew Noah was good. And even when we started dating, he was like, just so you know, I'm never, ever going to say anything that isn't on your side. He's like, it's always to help. He, I just trusted him and he trusted me. And just, it was unshakable and I would never jeopardize that. In terms of the softness, he's a soft man. He's a sensitive man. He's a sweet man. Yeah, even though he's he, a like, chef. Yeah, he smokes whole animals and like picks up hot pots with his hands. And there's a toughness to him that's yeah. very um, understated. But a part of it is as a comic, you grew up, 
you know, the best example is take my wife, please. You know, yeah. you look at stand up and it's always like, my wife's a bitch. Oh, I yeah, got to deal with and this. Chain and, yeah. yeah Rodney Dangerfield got no respect. You know, like that wasn't a loving marriage. And then the last, I'd say, right before I met Noah, it was like 10 years up and coming in the comedy store, you know, you're in the belly of the beast and you're watching other comics and the sentiment is largely like, this girl trapped me into this. This is not every male comic, by yeah, the way. Yeah, no, no. I, this girl trapped me. Like, I wanted to be the next thing in comedy. And like, she's a teacher and she wanted to have kids, so we did. You never met the wives. Sometimes you met the girlfriends when you knew the wife was at home. Everything was this kind of scuzzy attitude. And I had plenty of male friends who I loved. And I'm like, that's not your wife. And by the way, it takes two to tango. It's not necessarily, like, it's yeah. definitely not the cheating woman he's cheating on with, not her fault. But there was this vibration, like mar- like marriage is, is gross and it's cool to be out because comedy is a very like not relationship friendly thing. And it shaped the way, you know, I'd see male comics come and they bring like model after model to a show or they bring different girls. And I remember being like, okay, well, I don't have to appear single. I can bring the dudes that I date. So I would bring a guy that I was dating. And to me, it was kind of like, you got a hot guy? Well, I got, you, you got a hot girl? I got a hot guy. And, and what's gonna, and nope, it was in my head, but it was just this sense of this is not like, like Jimbery, <laughs> this is not a kid-friendly place. And for the longest time, women didn't have uh, kids in comedy. And now it's so normal. So many female comics, I hate that term, but so many comics yeah. who are women, women yeah. are married with kids. It's fine. And it became normal. And I just, I realized, you know, what everybody wants is to find someone that they love and trust that doesn't bring out the worst in them. And so mm. I don't go on stage and trash him because again, it's about likability. If I get on stage, I'm like, my husband's such an idiot and I'm the worst and I'm gross. <laughs> you're, you're catering to the lowest common denominator and that's also not my truth. Men are very straightforward. They really are. Yeah. Something to be borrowed. And so I realized, so I said to him, listen, I'll do everything for you. Cause I, I, it's easy for me. I can do it. Mm-hmm. And you seem to really enjoy it, but just don't treat me like your wife. Treat me like your girlfriend. Talk to me a little bit about the don't panic pantry. Oh, so I mean, that's an extension of- yeah. I guess my appreciation for him, but the baseline of it, the what it is, is the pandemic hit and like a weekend, you know, like we're all like panic buying toilet paper and we didn't do that because I was like, this is not sustainable. Something's wrong here. So I said that, I was like, let's do a cooking show because I've had online shows before and yeah. I'm, I know what I'm doing in terms of hitting like go live. So we started doing it and uh, we called it Don't Panic Pantry because we were trying to, he's a very, we're both very level-headed and we both believe in science and we both believe in like, cutting through the bullshit and being like, like what's really happening in a society mm-hmm. as best we can. People were panicking and running out and they were not only bulk buying stuff, which is selfish because it's going to be okay. We do live in America, but I mean, I guess it depends on where you live, but they kept going out. Every time you needed something, right. you kept going out. And I was like, you're spreading this virus. Every time you go out to grab the extra ingredient. So our whole thesis was like, don't panic, use what you have. Don't panic. You can go to the Asian market to get that rice. You don't have to go to Ralph's. You're not going to get Corona. That is racist. Go to the Indian market. Go to the Chinese. Go to these other places, but don't panic. Cooking is not that precious. Here's what you can do. So that was the premise of it. And we went live and, and I said to him at the beginning of this, and I'll tell you the result of it. We didn't have a TV show. This is on Instagram live. And I said, let's commit to just doing this every day. 
We'll that's, do it every day. We did it every day for like a year. I know it's a lot. It's a lot, especially because he's the heart of it. Like it's easy for me to like joke around, but like- You're like, whip something up. <laughs> he would write out the recipes and he'd write it, like he really put his heart into it. This wasn't like, we're just drunk. I don't know what we're doing. Like there was a system to it. And that was him. And of course I'd make it funny and interact with the fans. And I brought my fan base and I said to him, we're going to do this every day. And what we lack in immediate star power and stickiness, we will make up for in consistency and we will get something out of this. Smart. I don't know what it is, but I'm a big, my mom said, I swam in high school. And she's like, you weren't the best swimmer. She's like, but you always muscled through at the end. I'll do six cities in five nights. I'll muscle through, you know, and there'll be big venues. It's not going to be Radio City Music Hall every night, but I will do 12 venues to get to that one. Like, so we just did it every night, every day. And we would sit there at night and we would go through, I'd be like, what companies do you really like? And he would tell me the companies, like food companies or, and we would just DM them just like you did with me. Hey, would you want to sponsor Don't Panic Pantry? We made up a business model. And so we got eventually, we got like Le Creuset and we have like, we got Dansk and we got like Wellness Mount. We, companies that we actually use yeah. versus like Crisco, you know? Uh, we just started doing it two times a week and he got a cookbook deal with Knopf, which I always say weirdly, but it is Knopf. They make these bespoke famous cookbooks and he got one, a Don't Panic Pantry cookbook with them. And if that's all we get out of it, and it also helped people in terms of it became appointment viewing and it's very comforting in the way that you would turn on friends to feel really comforted. Yeah. People would say like mental health wise, like it's so nice to know you guys are going to be in your kitchen every day at this time. And in a world that was so turned upside down, it felt good to be able to provide that because it in my wedding vows, I'm like, he's my home because my mm. food is where my home is yeah. and he makes my food. <laughs> and so he is kind of my home. Like I'm very comforted wherever he is. And I think people were tapping into that warmth. It's not cute to be a dick to your husband on camera. Like it doesn't make you look cute. You're not doing a service to your marriage. We're not perfect. We don't have fights as much. And we've had like one or two. And I've definitely said to him like, oh, you think this is yelling? I will show you yelling. (laughs) But I have to be careful because we're both sensitive. But he's, he was like, the good thing about you is if I mess up, you move on very quickly. He's like, Mm. but when you mess up, you also move on very quickly. (laughs) Right. Like you're like, I'm good. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to have those wife husband like Mm. spats. And sometimes I'm very cognizant of like when we are talking about like the plumbing or like a contractor or like, well, did you say we were going to Dan and Susan's house for dinner? Well, I don't like, and I'm like, what? We're supposed to be out getting wasted. But it's, that's what marriage is. Yeah. It's, there's a, a softening and a routine. And do you have any tricks for getting sleep? Because you're on the road. People are going to hate to hear this. I'm a very good sleeper. Seriously? Even in time zone change and whatever. <sighs> weird hotel, you're okay? The weird hotel doesn't bother me. I will tell you that I would love it if they'd sponsor me, but Bose noise-canceling headphones are a game changer. Not the headphones, but the earbuds. Mm-hmm. Every hotel room's got a weird refrigerator, a beeping, a thing. Yeah. Pop those in. You don't have to hear it. I actually need a lot of quiet to go to sleep. I don't have sleep tips. You know, a lot of times I think people feel like, oh, that excitement, that out, that I, well, my girlfriends and I, we were wasted. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's like, how has that transition been for you into this sort of new, exciting, consistent chapter and adventure? Is, I don't know. Is it hard? There was a period of mourning, yeah. to be honest, when you go from not being married to being married. Because when you're dating, it's still like, you know, this is fun. We're dating. And, you know, but then you're engaged. He immediately felt like home when I, the day I met him, it was so comfortable. There were no butterflies. It was like easing into a warm bath, whatever you need. But there was definitely that grass is greener thing. It wasn't for a specific person. It was just that I had to mourn the loss of that static energy on a Saturday night. It is gone. There is no more of that when you are married, but you're trading it for different things. Yeah. And the truth is that static energy when you're single and you're out, which I know about it because I've written at least three Netflix specials about it. 
You're looking for what I have now. You are looking for that, hoping to find that. You're hoping to meet someone. Yeah, it's super fun to like meet someone. You should make out. Maybe they're talking, whatever. But it does become exhausting. And for the most part, you want to meet someone and then you get what you want. And you're like, oh, I miss that. But you forget those nights where you're like, God, I wish I had a boyfriend. When am I getting married? Are all men the worst? Why was this guy terrible? You forget all that. And then like it kind of just clicks and you just ease in. And now you're like... Especially, I had to go to a bar. My like, when I first found out I was pregnant, I threw my best friend a birthday. And I was like negotiating. I didn't want to tell him I was pregnant. I was like, in theory, how much liquor could a pregnant woman have? And it's okay. <laughs> yeah. But, what's the line? What's the line? My friends, my friend, one of them was like very scientific. She was like, you are allowed to have one and a half ounces of liquor because like she did it. And I was like three weeks pregnant. So it kind of doesn't matter at that time. But I also didn't know, or does it matter the most? No idea. So I go and I set up this whole thing. We rented out this bar through a friend who owned it. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like nursing like the most watered down vodka anyone's ever had. And I am not drunk and I am very bored and everyone is wasted. And my best friend's trying to have drunk conversations with me. And I was just like, I hate this. I hate being here. I don't want, like, you're all terrible. Like, I was just like, I can never do this again. No, I can't be the sober pregnant woman at a bar. This is horrible, <laughs> horrible for me. I was so unhappy and I... I was like, how much small talk do we make when we're drunk? Like, what are we talking about? And very face talky. Very face talky. <laughs> and it's great when you're drunk, but if you don't have that elixir, that lubrication, I'm just like listening to someone like update me like on their schedule. And I'm like, I hope you die. I hate this. <laughs> so I left. I set up the party and I left. It was very hard for me. And I came home to my husband and we had pasta and I went to bed. And that becomes, especially as you get older, like that becomes what you, it's not for me anymore. There's no more Saturday nights and that's okay because I have cozy Sunday mornings. Yeah. You know? Before you go on stage, are you scared every time? Do I get scared? No. What do you get? Excited? It really depends on the show and what time of night it is. Interesting. Oh my God. There Sometimes I don't do third shows in a night anymore because by the third show, you're like, did I already say this to you? <laughs> I can't remember because you're so delirious, so tired. Like, of course you love your fans, just like you love your kids. And sometimes of you're course. like, oh, so there's sometimes there's like, okay, like you got to get yourself up for it because you're so tired, especially being pregnant. You're just like, here we go. And then you just turn it on. Uh, especially if I can hear that they're great. You know, there's like an energy back there. I was at a fundraiser. Oh, I don't oh. remember where we were. I, it was a fundraiser for blanking on it for a disease. Yeah. And I was there and I was backstage with Mark Marin, and we were kind of peeking out just to hear what does the crowd sound like, you know? And he goes, I go, they sound good. He goes, they're good. I go, yeah. He goes, you'll be fine. I go, it'll be fine. They'll be great. And he goes, just do what you always do. Make your animal noises, steamroll the audience and don't pause for laughter. You'll be fine. And I was like, oh man, that is so specific and so right. It's such an accurate character assassination. It's a, it's a, like you're champing at the bit because you're just like, I want to get out there. I got yeah. to get to that. Get into it. Yeah. I've definitely been nervous for like the Tonight Shows. Like I've done it a couple times. And so that is a little bit different because that's not, it's a Frankenstein set. It's not your normal set. It's its own weird thing. Yeah. Crowd's always great. When you've done it long enough that you can remove any fear, there is something very metaphysical. Yeah, you're in flow. Yes. You're in flow. And you don't tap into that for many, many years. You know, sometimes you get like bits of it, but mm. when you are solid and you know that audience is there not to judge you, but to see you. To be with you. Versus yeah. like, who's this girl? You feel it. There's the reason so many comics are addicted to drugs because nothing, also they had terrible childhoods or were like molested, but like nothing feels 
as good as that. Yeah. And you get off stage and you're like, I could break a car in half with my energy. And then an hour later, you're like, no one talked to me. I'm so tired. Leave me alone. It's like a serotonin drop or yep, whatever. I was sure. literally saying this. My manager and I were on the phone, which is the reason I was 10 minutes late. We were going through what European countries were allowed in at the moment and <laughs> right. what we're not. And we're Today. trying to figure out routing. Yeah. And we were talking about adding a late show. And I was like, just being pregnant, that's very difficult for me because I can't have extra coffee. I can't have a Red Bull, which I would normally do. I'd just be like, whatever, yeah. 10 o'clock at night. And I said, you know, I've noticed lately sometimes if it's a big show, it takes it out of me for the next day. And I was like, it's actually very spiritually depleting because you are giving everything. Yeah. And I'm very physical on stage. And so it's the best job that I think everybody wants. And I never take it for granted. I never take the audience or their financial commitment to it for granted. Yeah. I'm never late to start shows. If I'm late, it's because the audience wasn't there on time. It's their fault. Like I, I'm very aware of like, how hard it is and all the work that goes in. This audience wasn't just gifted. Yeah. You know. I have to say that I first of all I appreciate you answering and, and driving, coming here driving and to Malibu. Seriously driving to Malibu. Oh, yeah. I this deep in Malibu one has to be invited. You don't just show yeah. up here. Well next time you guys can come we'll actually give you food and like you know yes. nurture you and if yes. you have a, your daughter then we'll take the baby and you can yes. eat with two hands. Uh, yeah. Okay. It'll you'll be a great it. thing. You'll great. see how many times your husband Noah has to cut your food for you. It's great. <laughs> I just want to ask one last, which is the books. Why do you do the books? Because you don't have to. You have stand-up specials. You have movies that are loosely based on your dating life. You have sketch comedy shows. When you do the book, when you write it and then read it, it's a different exchange. What is it? Well, the answer is different for the two different books. Girl Logic was me uh, in my early 30s not wanting to write a tell-all about right. dudes I'd slept with. When there's nothing wrong with that because there are some really funny ones. It's just not my wheelhouse. And wanting to sort of take it for off the stage and be able to contextualize more and kind of get as scientific as you can without a degree in it. Why we think the way that we do. We get called crazy and I'm like, well, we're not. So let's talk about that and really unearthing stuff. So being able to do a deep dive that is funny, but it's less about hitting punchlines and more about looking at something right. in an analytical way, which I do on stage, but you have to be mindful of time on stage. And all things aside was really me in a pandemic. I had this constant need to create and I like to do quality things. That's why I don't do like a YouTube show every day or I don't, I don't just put stuff out there. It's never like just random stuff. It was, we were kind of at a standstill and I was like, well, what's something that I can't, like the tour was kind of frozen. I was like, mm. what's something that I can do? I can write this book proposal. So I did and now I have to do it. Uh, I just turned it in. At the time that I wrote it, that I pitched it, I wasn't pregnant and mm. there's this weird space when you're in your late thirties, it's like you're married, but I don't have like a lot to say about marriage because it's a really delicate, simple marriage. Like it's a lovely marriage. It's not like tap 10 rules for being married. Yeah. So I didn't want to be the authority on marriage and I couldn't speak with any intelligence about children. So I was like, well, I'll just be funny and I'll just talk about life the way I see it, which is what humorists like an Irma Bombeck or someone mm. or George Carlin or any people who aren't comics who just write funny books, personal essays. I was like, I'll just write personal essays. So it was me also challenging myself write about things not specifically related to to being a mother or marriage or dating. Because I've said all there is to say for me about dating. So it was just about like, how do we stay in the pocket in this time of life without speaking about something I don't know and without going back to the well for something else? So, and I do like writing and I acknowledge I'm not the world's greatest writer, but I think I'm good at it. And so how do you incorporate the comedy but still get to write something beautiful? Has the business side of it, because I do think this is sort of, important you obviously have expanded you know your business savvy where you're creating things and you're 
pitching things and doing that. Has that been also a fun kind of way to express yourself or is it just a means to an end to like get it the way you want it? It's all about expression, but at the core of it, it comes from my desire to be seen and heard, which is really, you know, some people that drives them, you know, like if I really come down to it. Great. To be seen and heard and to have what I say be something that's impactful versus fluff. Now, not everything I say is this meaningful thing. Jokes about party goblins are not like "Mm, spiritual, but it comes from this inherent desire. And maybe it's something I didn't get when I was younger, circling back to the beginning of this, but just being seen and heard and being known for being good at the thing that you seek to do. I don't have to be the most famous person on the planet, but I will be validated Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the art that I'm making. And sometimes you're going to make stuff like my sketch show didn't get a second season. I don't have to say like, but I still made the thing that I wanted to make. And as an artist, that's your goal is to be fulfilled. Not everybody's going to like stuff. Sometimes, you know, if you make the commercial thing, it'll go. And sometimes you do take that check. Sometimes you do do that gig. To be given the opportunity over and over to get to fail on your own terms and be creatively fulfilled, I think is the most important thing to me. It's something that I express to my husband. I'm like, please don't take a gig. Sometimes you have to, but like you need to feel creatively fulfilled because for artists, like that's all there is. Otherwise, what are you making? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.